Welcome to the First Naz Podcast. Today we join Pastor Paul as he preaches from John chapter 4 in his Lenten sermon series, Water for the Way, Enough for Everyone. Let's listen in. Well, if you're following along in, in the Water for the Way devotional guide, this morning's uh, reading, uh, uh, Gabriel Benjamin, who, who wrote that, he paints a picture of the period of apartheid in, in South Africa as this time period that people were incredibly, incredibly divided over, over lines simply drawn based on the color of people's skins. There, there were a few people who, who were the, the haves and, and the wealthy and the, the, the ones in command. And then there were a whole lot of those who were on the outside, who were the have-nots, who were looked upon as less than, <clears throat> who were less important and disadvantaged simply, simply because of the color of their skin. And he uses that period in history in South Africa as an illustration to how Jesus would have encountered the world as it relates to, to his people group, the Jews, and the, the people group that was in the, their, their same neighborhood, the Samaritans. And today we're looking at a picture, a story of Jesus interacting with a Samaritan woman, and, and he, he's trying to draw as sharp a contrast between the Jews and the Samaritans as possible. And really, the contrast cannot be drawn starkly enough. The, the line between Jew and Samaritan was, was so black and white. The, the uh, Jews were, were this people that had their identity and who looked down on the Samaritans. They, they, were, they were in the same, same piece of real estate there, the, the land that God had promised to uh, his people in the Old Testament. But, and and they, followed, they followed the Old Testament law. But they were divided over where to worship. We'll see that today in the story, the, this idea that do we worship God here or there. They were divided over that. But then they were also divided ethnically a little bit because the Samaritans traced their, their roots back to, to God's people, the Israelites, who had married the people living in the region of Samaria. And so the, these uh, Samaritan folks were, were, had intermarried. They had kept a lot of the law and the, the custom of the Old Testament and, and God's people, the Israelites, but they, they had separated. And, and the Jews were, well, they, they, they knew that they were better. And so they, even though they were, they were right there together, um, and the Samaritans, for, for, their, for their side, they, they tended to be a little opportunistic. So things, when things were really, really going well for the Jews, the Samaritans said, oh yeah, we're, we're brothers here. We are, we are in this together. But when things were not going well for the Jews, the Samaritans said, oh, we're descended from the Assyrians. We're, we're really not part of those people called the Jews. And so there was, there was this clear, clear division between, between these two people groups. Um, there, the, and, and the divisions, the divisions caused more hatred and disunity than the similarities uh, caused, uh, caused love and, and unity, right? Interesting how that happens, isn't it? How you can be like so similar and and your your similarities are just overlooked, but the dissimilarities, well, those are those are really important to us, right? And when we look in in the stories in the Gospels, we we rarely think of Jesus as being like particularly um, 
privileged. Uh, we, we think of Jesus as part of, of this people uh, who, were, who were dominated by the Roman Empire. The, the, the Roman Empire was overseeing everybody. They, they, were, they were A1, and everybody else was like third or fourth on the list. And so the, the, Romans, the Romans oversaw all of the area. They were really the political and, and powerful people, uh, authorities in, in the time. And both the Jews and the Samaritans were subject to the Romans. Uh, but because the, the Jews had fared better in the period leading up to Jesus' day, the, the Jews felt superior. And, and the Samaritans knew it. The Samaritans knew that the Jews felt superior. And so it's interesting that when we read the introduction of the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well, that, that Jesus is willing to put himself in that position. Now, I'm going to, I have a lot of scripture today, so I've invited a reader to help me, and Alyssa is going to read for me. She's, she's not an upfront person, so she's just going to read from right there, uh, but it'll help me uh, to, to stay on track if I know she's going to keep me on track, and so uh, the, you're welcome to follow along uh, in your own Bible. The words are also on the screen, and so Alyssa's going to start with uh, John uh, four, one through nine. Did you have a joke to start with or any? No, no jokes. She didn't want to start with a joke. I had asked her if she had a joke ready and she still doesn't. So, okay, go ahead. Uh, this is John four verses one through nine. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised. For Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? So, backing up, just looking at the very beginning of the story, Jesus has been drawing crowds in Judea. He, he had begun his ministry. In the book of John, his ministry begins in Judea. That's the southern part of the promised land, right around Jerusalem. And he had specifically begun his ministry mostly on the Jordan River and, and around John the Baptist. And, and Jesus wasn't above conflict with the religious authorities at that time. I mean, in John chapter 2, he goes into the temple with a whip and he clears it out and says, stop uh, changing money here. And so Jesus was not like meek and mild and didn't want controversy. But for whatever reason, at the beginning of John chapter 4, Jesus is drawing crowds. He knows the religious authorities are getting a little bit antsy about what's happening in the wilderness around the Jordan River with Jesus getting all of these people coming to be baptized by his followers. And so he says, I think we better blow dodge. I think we better get out of here. We got we to gotta get north. And so he decided to go north to Galilee. Galilee is where Jesus had grown up. And that's where, where Nazareth is. That's, that's where, where Jesus, we really think of Jesus' ministry starting there because in the other three gospels, that's where it happens. And, and so Jesus 
decides he needs to move from, from south to north. And the Gospel of John tells us, John tells us, he had to go through Samaria to get there. And while technically, technically, Samaria stands or, or is like right in between Judea and Galilee, technically, that's not true. Because technically, what the Jews did so they didn't have to set foot in Samaria when they walked from Galilee to, to Jerusalem is they would cross the Jordan River, walk on the east side of the Jordan River, and then cross the Jordan River again so that they didn't have to interact with Samaritans. And so when John says he had to go through Samaria to get there, it's a little, it's, it's one of those things that makes you go, hmm. And it makes me go, hmm. Because I don't know why he had to. I, I, it would have been a little bit longer to go across the Jordan. But later on in the story, Jesus is going to take a two-day hiatus here in Sychar, in this town. And so Jesus wasn't in a huge hurry to get where he was going, it doesn't seem like. And so it just kind of makes you go, hmm. So, there we go. Jesus, Jesus seemed to have a plan in mind, though. He gets to, he gets to this town, uh, this town called Sychar, where Jacob's well is located. And Jacob's well is like an important site, important historical site. Jacob was this really, really important uh, forefather. It, both the the Samaritans and the Jews would have looked back on Jacob as an idol and a hero from their, from their past. And so there at Jacob's well, Jesus takes this break. And, and when, when Jesus is encountered by a lone woman at the well, at Jacob's well especially, uh, if, you're, if you're real familiar with the Old Testament, if you're real familiar with the Old Testament, it might just come into your mind that, that Isaac and Jacob and Moses, they were all sitting by wells when their wives came onto the scene for the first time. They met their wives at wells. And so if, you're, if you don't know where this story is going, if you just hear Jesus, one of you know, the, the great-great-great-grandsons of these important men, is sitting at a well and a lone woman comes up, our minds, in our culture, we would think, oh, this is going to be a little romantic story. It's going to start right here. I think they called this a meet-cute in uh, romantic comedies. But in Jesus' culture, that, that's what we would think, right? But in Jesus' culture, this is a scandal. This is a scandal. Jesus, Jesus there, a lone man, uh, a religious man, he, he is not supposed to interact with non-family women in such a, an unrestrained uh, sort of, you know, no boundaries, no, no witnesses. This is, this is too uncontrolled for Jesus to interact with another woman, a woman who's not family. In fact, by law, Jesus probably is forbidden from, from interacting with a woman like this in, in this situation with no structure at all. There's, there's really nothing about this that, that is right. And so when the woman came to the well by herself, she saw Jesus there. She probably just hoped that Jesus would ignore her. And that would probably have been the right thing to do. 
You know, it would have been just the, a silence would have been comfortable for both of them. And, and silence probably, like historically, these people did not like each other. And so historically, their silence would have just, it would have reflected their mutual rejection of each other because of their, of their nationality, right? Their ethnicity. It wouldn't have said anything more, really. You know, in our, we read it in male-female dynamics, like a silence would have, would have represented like a rejection of any romantic interest. But I think what's going on here is, is you know, silence would have, would have really reflected a Jewish man. He has no time, no time whatsoever for, for a Samaritan lady. And so Jesus breaking the silence is, is like a major cultural no-no. And, and he, he asks for a drink of water. He, he's a stranger asking for hospitality, which maybe in the culture is like, okay, maybe it's okay. But it's obvious that the woman has just no interest whatsoever. She, she is just, she, why are you even asking me? Why are you, why? Why would you ask me? What, what business do you have asking me for a drink of water? It, she didn't ask Jesus to start a conversation. But Jesus has this habit throughout his ministry of, of making conversation with people he doesn't have business having conversation with and of changing people's lives when he has one-on-one -on -one conversations with people. Now, this conversation kind of gets off to an awkward start. And there's no way around it. Jesus sounds a little bit like a traveling salesman when he starts talking in, in this, this passage. He sounds just, just a little bit weird. And, and the Samaritan woman, she calls him on it. So uh, verses 10 through 12, we'll, we'll get to next. Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Well, the words living water here don't mean anything spiritual. We, we read living water and we automatically go back to the camp song that I grew up singing, spring up a well within my soul. You know, that's like, that's what we think of as living water. We think it's something spiritual that, that Jesus is offering here. The Samaritan woman doesn't read it as anything spiritual. She doesn't hear it spiritually. She hears it the way that it was understood in, in first century in the desert, in that culture. Living water is simply running water. It's water that's moving. And so living water, early first century Christians, by the way, thought that you needed to be baptized in living water. That was like one of the, one of the early requirements, but that changed as, as uh, baptismal understanding progressed. But anyway, that's, that's sorry, weeds, I'm gone. Okay, living water, it just means running water. And so Jesus is saying, I can, I can provide you with water that you don't have to put a bucket on a rope down into a hole to get. You, I can give you water that's like just surface water. You won't have to, you won't have to uh, get, come out here and, and haul this water by the bucket full. 
And, and the woman thinks that Jesus is just like really high on himself. Um, she, she thinks he's a little bit crazy. Uh, like beginning to think like he thinks he can get water out of this well so quickly that it will be running or something. And she says like, you don't, you don't even have the means to get one bucket full of water out of this thing. How, how are you possibly, how are you possibly going to make a stream? Like you don't, you don't have the means to start a river right here. And it seems like a fair question. And, and Jesus has an answer that, that piques the woman's interest in verses 13 through 15. Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. So we see, we see that Jesus is speaking sort of spiritually, metaphorically. The woman understands it all physically, right? There, there is just a literal understanding that she, she is looking for someone to start a, a, a river right there in the desert. And, and without realizing what she's doing, she does exactly what Jesus told her she would do. Because earlier in the story, Jesus says, if you realize who I am, you would be asking me for a drink of water. And, and just like two interactions later, less than a minute of conversation later, oops, she's already asking Jesus for a drink of water, just like he predicted. And, and so Jesus has completely, completely quelled her skepticism. She, her interest is fully, fully piqued. She wants to buy what Jesus is selling. And, and so Jesus, uh, turns turns the conversation right here. She's ready to buy, and Jesus has one question. And, and what, what seems like it's just like an innocent question, innocent remark, it, it seems to disrail the whole conversation about water. We, we read in, in verses 16 through 18 here. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. I don't know what to do with Jesus asking, go and get your husband, telling her that. Honestly, this is kind of, this is something that bothers me a little bit in the text. Uh, it's just just one of those it could be like we we could read it as if Jesus is trying to restore some of the appropriate guardrails on conversation with a with a lone woman in in the first century like Jesus is saying okay this conversation has gone on far enough you need to go get your husband before we talk anymore it could be that except that Jesus knows the answer Jesus knows that she doesn't have a husband and that she's had five husbands and that she is living now with a man who is not her husband. And, and so I just don't know why Jesus would ask this question. In the past, I've read this, this interaction to be like Jesus 
is asking this question as sort of a gotcha. Like, Jesus has found this really sinful woman in the desert, and, and he has come along and he has asked this question to just, like, point out how terrible she has been all her life and, and what a bad, bad woman she... And finally, this great religious teacher has come along to, to set her straight. Let me tell you, that is not what is happening here. That is not at all what is happening here. We need to remember the, the context of, of the first century and, and what, what could have led to a woman having had five husbands and now living with a man who is not her husband. If it was divorce, if this woman was like serially married and divorced, like into serial monogamy, you know, uh, if that was the case, in the first century, divorce was initiated by men, ratified by men, and it left ex-wives destitute with less power than married women and, and basically untouchable in the culture. And so if she was divorced once, like the next guy that would marry her to divorce her a, a second time wouldn't have been like a stellar dude. Um, just because, because of the fact that she would have been married and divorced. It, it would have been risking, risking his reputation. Five husbands, now living with a guy that's not her husband. There's one other possible explanation, though. There's another plausible explanation. And, and that is that she, she had lived through the death of five husbands. Or, or some and been divorced, I don't know. The Old Testament law that requires a family to give a widow an heir makes it plausible. So, so in the Old Testament, families were required, if, if a man dies, leaves his wife without an heir, without a male child, a brother had to marry her. It's, it's plausible that she was widowed and widowed again, and widowed again. Regardless of how her history came to be, Jesus telling her, go and get your husband, it, it brings out the most painful reality of her existence. Repeated heartbreak. Repeated frustration. Repeated agony. And, and she's surprised. Jesus says, you know, it's true. Uh, she's, she's surprised. There's nothing about her that could have given it away, right? There's nothing, there's nothing about her, her appearance that, that could have given it away. And so she realizes that Jesus has insight that is not from this world. And, and whether it is just to, to change the subject or because it's really a question she has, the woman changes the topic of conversation completely. And, and we'll read a little bit longer here in verses 19 through 30. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? 
while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped. Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, What do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. There's so much to unpack from this passage. I just have two observations to make. The, the first, first observation, the first thing that really stood out to me as I, as I read through this is Jesus' tone with the woman. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, dear woman, believe me, dear woman. Uh, the, that, that, word, that word dear, when I learned it in English, when I learned as a child growing up, I, I learned dear as the way you begin a letter, Right? I learned to write a letter, dear grandma, I am fine, how are you? And, and that's how you started a letter, right? Uh, it, it's just a greeting. It's nothing more than that. And then I, I, I learned Spanish later in life, and I learned the word querido, dear. But I learned it for the people who are dear to me first. I learned that word as, as like the, the people that... Um, I, I speak fondly of are my dear ones. I learned a few months later as I had to kind of professionalize my Spanish and, and start writing, you know, more professional letters and, and emails. Uh, I learned that the, the proper way to start a, an important email to a district superintendent was to say, dear pastor, reverend, district superintendent, sir. And I knew all of those guys, and they weren't dears. <laughs> but that's the way, that you know, it's just like the form, the form of, of the language. Uh, I, but I, that, that has stuck with me, this idea that we... The form of our, of our use of the language, like the way that, that we have used this word dear, uh, has, has kind of lost a lot of meaning. But the, the alternative to Jesus using that as just like sort of a glib, sort of, let me tell you, dear woman, um, I, I just don't, I don't believe I don't believe that Jesus would use language in a way that would try to put somebody in their place or in a way that is just sort of, because we use that word, we'll use it in this context. I, I really think 
what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's seeing to the heart of someone who has been broken by the circumstances of her life. He sees a woman who, who has been through more than you and I care to think about. And he says, dear woman, dear woman, believe me. Dear woman, I know. I think it's nothing but kindness. It is that Jesus truly holds this daughter of God in his heart. And he says, dear woman. The second thing that really stands out is that this dear woman is the first person that Jesus comes right out in the Gospel of John and says, I am the Messiah. It's this, it's this dear woman. This is his first full admission of his identity. He dances around it in other circumstances and other conversations. John the Baptist and the disciples who had started following him, they, they kind of got it. They were on board. They were hopeful. They, they, they were pretty sure that they had found the one. They, they thought that they, they knew. Uh, but, but this is the first real, real confession. And just think about who Jesus has interacted with up to this point in the gospel. In John chapter 3, he is with Nicodemus, this important religious teacher, I mean, he could have, to an important religious teacher, come right out and said, hey, bro, you've been looking for someone special? Here I am. Jesus, in John chapter 2, he was in the temple. He was right there where it all happens. He, could, he drew a crowd. He could have said, all you people, you're looking for the Messiah. And here I am. Worship me. Here I am. Jesus chooses instead, in, in private, in a private conversation with, with this Samaritan woman who had experienced nothing but heartache throughout her life, to confess who he is. And the outcome, the outcome is, is just as head-spinning and just as remarkable. I'm, gonna, I'm going to have Alyssa skip a few verses here, and, and we're going to move to, to John uh, chapter 4, verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. It's a little disorienting. It's a little crazy to think that the first group of people who aren't like Jesus' cousin and the disciples who, who chose him from the beginning, it, the first group of people who really have no business being around Jesus, the first gathering, the first church is this town of Sychar in Samaria. The first gathering of, of people who want to believe and follow Jesus 
because they know that he is the Messiah, is Samaritans, in the middle of the desert, brought to the Lord by this woman who over and over and over has experienced rejection and heartache. It's not in rich, chosen, powerful Judea. It's not in the holiest place on earth in the temple in Jerusalem. It's not because of Nicodemus, the powerful and wise teacher of the law. It's the Samaritan town of Sychar because of a five-time abandoned woman. Jesus teaches us a master class in honoring the people the rest of the world would ignore in this passage. We, we all, we all have people in our lives that we would just rather not uh, interact with. You know, not everybody gets along with everybody. <laughs> not everybody gets along with everybody. That's okay. That's just the way the world is. We, we all have certain types of people that we just, we just don't even need to try with, right? Uh, we, we know because we know. If they're from a specific part of town, if they dress like that, if they ha- we know their background and so we don't even need to try. We, we know what they believe and we don't need to even have a conversation because we know we are, we're not going to like them. Jesus would have been raised to despise Samaritans. As a young boy, he would have heard songs sung about the Samaritans and jokes about the Samaritans. Those people. They're the, they're, they are the fair game for all of the meanest jokes. But in John chapter 4, Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. He stayed out of town while his disciples went looking for some food. And he doesn't turn his nose up at the person who comes across his path in those circumstances. And so, we followers of Jesus, we have to, we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to risk kindness to those people that we think we would never get along with? Are, are we willing to risk sharing the gospel even with, with one of those people? Are, are we willing to step out of our, of our defensive posture with the folks we'd just rather not have anything to do with? If, if we are going to follow the example of Jesus, we must. We must. And, and that's, that's kind of the lesson for us Christians in this passage. Jesus didn't see all of the, the boundaries that people in his culture saw as reason to, to pull away from relationship, to withhold the good news. <laughs> Jesus was willing to share. Even with the people he grew up being told, those people are okay to despise. There is one more reminder, though, in this passage. The reminder that no matter 
how far you think you are from God's grace and God's mercy. Jesus sees you and he thinks you're worth it. There, there is no such thing. There is no such thing as being from the wrong people, the wrong family, the wrong part of town. And there's certainly no such thing as having the wrong history for being acceptable by Jesus. Thanks for joining us for the First NAS podcast. We hope to see you soon in person, online, or right here.